Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Lawrence Taylor speaking, pastor of Kenilworth Baptist Church. And today, another episode on reflection on scripture. As most of you know, today, that is uh, Sunday, January the 15th, is the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King. If he had lived, he would have been 94 years old today. Remember, he was struck down in 1968 by an assassin's bullet. And I just want to talk a little bit about King, his dream, his goal, his campaign, and why our young people should know about his legacy. Now, King was, for all intents and purposes, one of the most significant leaders of the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement did not begin with Dr. King. It didn't even begin in the 1950s. That is one of the most common misnomers that we have about the civil rights movement. Well, in fact, Black folks have been struggling for civil rights and human rights ever since they've been on this continent. Let's uh, recall um, the various slave rebellions that took place. A historian by the name of Kenneth Clark, back in the 1950s, uh, Kenneth Stamp, I'm sorry, Kenneth Stamp, back in the 1950s, documented 150 slave rebellions. Slave rebellions consisted of blacks jumping overboard, taking over ships, like we know of the story of the Amistad. Uh, and um, we also know of slave rebellions like the Malkvesi and, of course, the famous uh, one in Hampton, Virginia, Nat Turner's Rebellion, one of the most violent uh, slave rebellions uh, recorded. But there were so many others that we just don't know about because there was constant resistance against this brutal institution. Some of these rebellions were brutal, but the institution of slavery was brutal. It's that kind of brutality that produced that brut brutal response. But not only that, you had great leaders like uh, Paul Cuffey, uh, who started um, a Back to Africa movement way before there was a Marcus Garvey. And of course, uh, you have David Walker. Uh, David Walker was a former slave, and David Walker uh, was free, and he wrote, wrote a great pamphlet. Uh, and he was advocating uh, for blacks to violently overthrow, if necessary, the institution of slavery. Uh, we um, also uh, know of liberty laws that existed in the 1850s. You get the Anthony Burns case in Massachusetts where blacks, uh, black abolitionists took up arms to fight against deputy, deputies who were coming to arrest Anthony Burns and bring him back to slavery because he was a runaway slave. This was based on the 18, 
50 uh, compromise, and that compromise was a fugitive slave law. It deputized anybody, even those in the North, captured slaves. But there was rebellion. They took up arms to fight against this. Uh, and uh, let's note the um, in the uh, early 1900s, uh, the um, civil rights movement, which was educational. You had people like Booker T. Washington, who advocated that blacks pursue vocational education in comparison to uh, others like W.E.B. Du Bois, the first black man to graduate with a Ph.D. from Harvard, who advocated both vocational and academic education. Um, Monroe, William Monroe Trotter. Uh, and now some of these names you're not familiar with, I know, because they don't teach these uh, folks, but at least you get them here on this broad uh, podcast. All right, so you, you had people like William Monroe Trotter, uh, who was the one who prompted Du Bois to come out against Booker T. Washington, this whole fight for education. This was part of the civil rights movement. Um, we're talking about in the early 1900s. And the rise of the uh, the establishment of the uh, oldest civil rights organization in the nation. Uh, that's the NAACP. Uh, and, of course, uh, other organizations in the 1940s. A Philip Randolph, a labor, a black man who was a labor leader, sleeping car porters. He uh, organized these workers. And he led a march on Washington. That's right. There was a march on Washington before the I Have a Dream speech that King gave in 1963. This was led by A. Philip Randolph. Uh, and Randolph was also responsible for the 1963 uh, March on Washington, too. He was one of the main organizers. So, you know, to think that civil rights began with Rosa Parks, well, that's just, <laughs> that's, is just not the case. You know, black people didn't wake up one day and say, hey, you know what? I think this is a good year to have a civil rights movement. Didn't work that way. There's always been struggle in the fight for human rights. Now, King came, really ascended to the head of this movement that took place in the 1950s and 60s. One, because he was a minister. And the ministers um, did not begin the movement. For instance, the Montgomery bus boycott that many of you are familiar with. Well, it was um, the ministers who joined in the movement, but the movement was started by groups like uh, the NAACP led by um, um, Nixon. Um, I'm trying to think of his first name. Um, but uh, e. Nixon was a, um, a leader of the local NAACP in Birmingham, Alabama. It was started with uh, the Women Political Caucus Group, a black organization. Then the ministers came in and they selected King. Uh, and one of the reasons why they went to the ministers is because the ministers were independent. They did not depend upon the city uh, for their living. Teachers couldn't do it. Teachers depended upon the cities. Postal workers and others could not do it because they depended upon the government 
And if they led a civil rights movement, it could always be reprisals. But they couldn't threaten the jobs of the ministers because the ministers received their income from the people. King was chosen because he had a Ph.D., but he was also chosen because he was unknown in the city at that time. He had just become the uh, pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Uh, and therefore, uh, he was a um, the right right person for that for that position. Uh, and he was a great speaker. And so he led the Montgomery bus boycott. And as you know, that boycott took one year. Blacks first argued, uh, demanded, I should say, not argued, demanded that they would have a more humane form of segregation on the buses. In other words, uh, they would not have to give up their seats in the back to a white person when a white person came. Remember how the system worked. When blacks entered the bus, in most cities they had to, in the South, they had to go to the front, put their money in the bus, um, token, whatever it is, and then go off and then enter through the back of the bus and take the seats in the back. Now, if there, if all the seats were filled in the front and in the middle, and there were no more seats left, then even the back seats, blacks had to stand up and give give their seats to white people. So imagine a, a white man gets on the bus. There's no more space there. There's a pregnant black woman sitting in the back, she, this pregnant black woman would have to get up and give the white man a seat. So the demand initially was just let us have the seats in the back. We don't have to give it up. But the bus company refused. But no, we're not going to give in to that. We, we, we refuse to do that. So the leadership of the Montgomery Association decided, all right, Let's go all the way then. Let's not uh, just play games with these people. Let's demand the end of, of a whole segregated system on the bus. We can sit anywhere we want to. And so the bus company said, absolutely not. So blacks were so well organized because of the churches. And it wasn't just King. A number of black uh, local leaders, as I said before, um, Fred Shettlesworth, well-known civil rights leader, Reverend Fred Shettlesworth. He was one of the ones who was very instrumental in organizing this Montgomery bus boycott, too. And so what they did was um, carpool it. People walked, but they refused to ride the bus. And that took almost one year. And the bus company almost went bankrupt. And so they decided to give in to the demands and that of, of the Montgomery Association. And as a result, that ended the whole deal. This one, remember now, Rosa Parks was asked to give her seat to the up. She refused to do it. Uh, she was arrested, and that ignited the movement, 
And from that came the end of segregation in public transportation. King got national acclaim for this. Uh, and uh, they went on to organize an organization called the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And King was the president of it. And of course, his associate, uh, Ralph Abernathy, was his vice president. Uh, and um, as you know, that um, that became one of the major civil rights organizations, along with the NAACP, along with CORE, along with SNCC, uh, uh, along with the Urban League. Uh, so these were very important, vital civil rights organizations. We owe King a great debt. Uh, King, in fact, was vilified for most of his career. And what I mean by that is that people have basically cleaned King's act up. They sanitized it because he was hated by so many people. The establishment as a whole was very cool towards him. I'm talking about the liberal establishment was cool towards King. They felt that he was pushing things too far and going too far. In fact, let me give you an example. In 1964, uh, because of the civil rights leadership, the federal government, under the president of the United States, then Lyndon Johnson, um, signed, with the approval of the Congress, the Civil Rights Bill, ending housing discrimination and other things like that. So... Uh, that was monumental. King and the others um, said, look, that's fine. Now we want a voting rights act. And they went to the president of the United States and said, now we want a voting rights act too. President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, was a liberal kind of guy, but he was a Texan. He said, oh, wait a minute, fellas, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, you boys are asking for a little too much now. I mean, you just got your civil rights bill. Now give these white people some time to breathe. Uh, and of course, that was an unacceptable response. Uh, and it's because of their tenacity that is uh, these these uh, civil rights workers like King uh, that um, they pushed. And in 1965, Lyndon Johnson, a reluctant Lyndon Johnson, signed the Civil Rights, uh, the Voting Rights Act. How monumental that was, people. Let me tell you how monumental that was. In 11 states in this union, Blacks were not allowed to vote. They were prevented either through literacy tests or poll tax or plain old downright violence. Just taking uh, the, um, the the tragic event of the three civil rights workers, Goodman, Goodman, Smyrna, and Cheney, who were murdered by the police and the Klan. And what would these civil rights workers do? One was black, two were white. The two who were white were Jewish. What they attempted to do is to register blacks to vote. And because of that, they were murdered by the police, along with the Klan. Um, that, that's how dangerous it was to talk about voting. 
But that bill ended that kind of intimidation. It prevented, it got away with uh, grandfather clauses, with uh, with the um, poll tax, and with literacy tests. And now Blacks were free not only to vote, but to even run for office. All of this is under the leadership of Dr. King. So we owe a great debt, a great debt to King. And I'm just just, uh, touching the surface of the many accomplishments that King made. Now, I want to be clear about this. It was because of this movement that it made it easy, uh, easier for blacks to come from other countries and enjoy the fruits of the the, the uh, fruits of the labor of what this civil rights movement did. See, if you many many folks weren't here when this struggle was going on. But it's because people walked, protest, got beaten, was hosed, had dogs sicked on them, uh, had, um, had were lynched, uh, gave up their lives. It is because of this that other blacks from other countries can come here and enjoy uh, the liberties that this country now offers. Because it didn't matter where you were from. You were black before this struggle. You were going, you were classified as inferior and you didn't, you wouldn't have the right to vote or to participate in any way. You had to use segregated toilets. You had to use segregated amusement parks. In fact, you wouldn't even be allowed to go into the amusement parks. Uh, you, you had to get on the back of the bus no matter where you were from. So um, let's. This is a, a a man that everyone, regardless of where you're from, everyone should greatly appreciate. I want to share the scripture with you. If you turn with me to the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, you have, of course, the story of the conversion of Cornelius, Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And it is by, through Peter. And I want you to note what Peter says after Peter had a vision three times of the sheep with all kinds of animals in it. And God said, kill and eat. And Peter said, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God said, what I have cleansed, let no man call unclean. Now, Peter understood the meaning of that vision when he got a visitation, uh, when he met Cornelius and his entourage. And in chapter 10, verse 34, it says, opening his mouth, Peter said, 
I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Okay, he said, now I've come to the realization that God is no respecter of person. He doesn't care where you're from. He doesn't care what your race is or what language you speak. The fact of the matter is God is the creator of all of us. And for anyone to discriminate against somebody because of the color of their skin or because of their language or because of their cultural differences, well, whatever the case may be, that's abhorrent to God because this passage tells us that God is no respecter of person. And I want you to know that what King did, he was doing the work of God. Well, I thank you for listening. I hope you were blessed by this message on reflection on the scripture. See you next time. Salvation